All right, open your Bibles to the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 this evening. And the topic is the disturbing effect of Jonah's sin. The disturbing effect of Jonah's sin. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, read from the Good News translation, it says this, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your land, your relatives, and I will show you, and go to the land that I will show you. God said, I will make you a great nation, Abram. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Through your family, uh, through you, every family on earth will be blessed. God had called the Jews to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. But whenever the Jews were out of the will of God, they brought terrible, uh, they brought trouble instead of blessing. Twice, Abraham brought trouble to people because he lied. Achan brought trouble to Israel's army because he robbed God. And now here in Jonah, Jonah brought trouble to a ship filled with, with pagan sailors because He ran from God. Think about all that Jonah lost because he wasn't a blessing to others. And we can ask that question about us tonight. Are we a blessing to those around us or are we a curse? You know, sin does not bring peace. It brings turmoil. Isaiah said in chapter 48, verse 22, he says, There is no peace, says God, for the wicked. Sin creates chaos. Sin creates disorder, confusion in the mind. It brings disorder in the family and and, and in schools and businesses and nations and churches, just to name a few areas. If you look at our society tonight, if you look at our, our nation tonight, it's a mess. You know why? It's the result of sin. It's man's disobedience to God. You see, God is a God of order, and, and He has an order for man. But when we decide to do our own thing, it messes things up. Man's disobedience has messed things up so badly that the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8.22, the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And creation and, and, and the whole world right now is groaning. It's groaning. Men are always trying to water down the seriousness of their disobedience to God's word, the Bible. But the upsetting consequences of even the the so-called little sins, as we like to call them, though there are no little sins to God, all sins resulted in Jesus Christ being crucified on the cross. But even the so-called little sins disproves everything that man tries to do to lessen the harmful nature of evil. One man's sin, think of it, one man's sin can affect so many people's lives. Remember in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 when David told, he ordered Joab, his general, to go out and count the people of Israel? God had told David, don't count the people, don't depend upon the amount of people to to you know protect you and to protect the kingdom you count on me not the number of people in your kingdom but joab 
Joab tried to convince David, David, don't do it. God didn't want you to do that. But David wouldn't listen. And he insisted that Joab count the number of people in his kingdom. And then we read that God was displeased with what David did. And as a result, God struck Israel with a plague. And 70,000 people were killed because of one man's sin. Now that 70,000 that's listed, think about the relation to those 70,000 people. Friends and relatives and loved ones. So there was, there was a lot of people, more than 70,000, that were affected by David's decision to go against God's word. And how many people are suffering today because our government and, and the leaders who are supposed to be serving the people go against God's word and, and destroying people and causing misery in their lives. So it's no surprise that Jonah's disobedience to God's command brought a whole lot of chaos to everybody on that ship that he got on. So many things were affected because of Jonah's sin. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at all the things that were affected by Jonah's disobedience. So let's look now at verse 4. The first thing that we see upset because of, of Jonah's sin was God. Look at verse one, um, verse 4 of chapter 1. It says, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. The beginning of verse 4, where it says, but the Lord. The beginning of verse 4 suggests the Lord was very upset because of Jonah's disobedience. Everything that we do is a major concern to God. Now, if we think that that... that What we do isn't a big deal. Think about what Jesus said. Jesus said the very hairs of your head are all numbered in Matthew 10.30. If we think that things are no big deal to God, remember what Jesus said. Every hair on your head is numbered. Even the least important part of God's people Their body has been recorded. The very hairs of our head are counted and recorded and even the most uh, minute circumstances are known by God. All their lives are under the plan of the loving God. God is concerned about all the details of our lives. Even the hairs of our head are numbered. It doesn't say are counted, they're numbered. They're not counted in a total, they're numbered individually. Chance is not in our statement of belief. The order of things by the eternal God who sees all things rules our destiny. And yet, behind everything that God does, love is behind everything that He orders. And sometimes it doesn't look at it like, like, like God is love. Because we think of God and we think of things and see things that happen in our own ideas and our own thoughts. But we don't know the mind of God. We don't know the infinite mind of God. We don't know why He allows an, a, certain things to happen. Things that look destructive and, 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 and where people are suffering. We don't, we don't understand the mind of God. We can't figure out the mind of God. We have to trust in what His Word says that God is love and behind everything that He does is love. 
And what we do either makes God happy or it grieves Him. Obedience brings blessing and approval while disobedience invites His judgment. And God's judgment was made pretty clear in the case of Jonah here. Because earlier, God had commanded Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. They need me. They need to hear the word of God. Joseph said, Jonah said, no way. Jonah said, hey, I'm afraid if I go tell them about your mercy and grace, they'll repent and you'll save them. He didn't like the Ninevites. Jonah's response to God's command in verse 3, it says, when God spoke to him and said, go to Nineveh, it says, but Jonah arose to flee. In other words, when God said, go to Nineveh, Joseph said, no way. I'm sorry, Jonah said, no way. And he fled from God's presence. That's the reason for the response here in verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind. Because Jonah took off in the ship to Tarshish, God sent a great wind upon the sea. So Jonah made the huge mistake of trying to butt heads with God, the Almighty God. No man has ever won that battle. And no man ever will. If you mess with God's with God, now he's going, to have, he's going to deal with you. Jonah upset the Lord when he said no to God, when he disobeyed his command. It would be wise and a big help to us if we cared more about God's reaction to things than we do. People seem to be more worried about what other people will think about them than what God will think about what they do. Many people think of God as, as just a kindly old man who, who's sentimental and, and, and he kind of closes his eye to sin and, and in the end he just pats everybody on the head and says, oh, okay, I understand. And he, make, and, and, and he makes everybody happy. But we need to view God for who he really is. He is a holy God. And because he's a holy God, he hates sin. And he doesn't look upon sin lightly. He doesn't look upon sin and rebellion like, uh, uh, lightly. He reacts strongly to it. Now, our society today doesn't get all that upset about evil. As a matter of fact, today people are calling evil good and good evil. Isaiah said, when a nation is, nation is sinful, laden with iniquity. They have forsaken God like Jonah did when he fled from his presence. And it will provoke as Isaiah said, the Holy One of Israel. It will provoke him to anger. And God gets very upset over sin, and rightly so. And because God gets upset over evil and, and, uh, evil and he deals strongly and forcefully with it, <clears throat> he's not to be thought of in any way as a mean man. As a man who's being mean and hateful and vengeful. You know, who enjoys crushing his enemies. That's not God's sense in, in, in behind what he does. In Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, he speaks to the house of Israel and he says to the people, turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? He was pleading with them. You know, turn from your ways. God isn't like that. You know, he doesn't enjoy, you know, having to, 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 to chasten people. God's strong reaction to Jonah's sin wasn't without love and grace. What he did to Jonah because of his sin, 
It was done with love and grace. In God's wrath, he was trying in love and mercy to bring Jonah back to the path of obedience. Again, the great example that the Bible uses is that of a parent. Why do you discipline a disobedient child? Because you want to bring that child back in and, put them, and get them back on the right path. And God wants that for us. When he disciplines us, it's not that he's taking out, he's not being vengeful or, or mean or, or, or reacting to what we, we did. He disciplines us to bring us back and to put us on the right path. When somebody forsakes God, God doesn't forsake that person immediately. But in love and mercy, God tries that, to get that man back to redeem that sinner and to save that diso, uh, disobedient person from being totally lost. As Peter said in 2 Peter 3.9, he's not willing, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So when Jonah sinned, when he said no to God, God began the rescue mission to rescue Jonah from his rebellionists. That's just one of the wonderful things about our God's attributes. That even when God's wrath is stirred up, you can see that love and grace is behind every move that God makes. But when you're the disobedient one and the Lord is dealing with you, you might not see a lot of grace because you're not looking for it. You know, you can, you can probably look back on your child and, and, and see when your parents disciplined you, you probably didn't feel a lot of love and a lot of grace. You probably thought that they were mean and that they didn't love you. But it was just the opposite. The parent who loves his child will discipline them. Because Solomon said in Proverbs thirteen twenty four, he who loves him, that is his child, disciplines him. Why? To stop his child from ruining his life. Disciplining is a sign of love. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And the word chasten is a Greek word that means child training, instruction, discipline. A Greek boy in Paul's day was expected to work out in the gymnasium until he reached his maturity. It was a part of his preparation for adult life. And the writer of Hebrews looked at the trials of the Christian life as the spiritual discipline that could help a believer mature. So instead of trying to escape the difficulties of life, we should rather be exercised by them, trained by them, so that we might grow through them. When we're suffering, it's easy to think that God doesn't love us or God doesn't care. So the, Hebrew, the, the writer of Hebrews gave us three things pointed out three things that, that chastening comes from the Father's heart of love. First, chastening is found in Scripture. It's found in the Bible in Hebrews 12, 5 through 6 and Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. So you find chastening found in Scripture. Secondly, you find that, that chastening, is, chastening is a personal experience. In Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, it says, We had fathers that disciplined us. And we, most of us probably did. We had fathers that disciplined us. And then third, we see the blessed results of those chastenings. Hebrews 12, 11, and 13 says, the, we experience the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The peaceable fruit of righteousness. 
In other words, the fruit of our chastening is righteousness. It's doing the right thing. It's acting in the right way. So if any love is lacking, it's not on the part of God. It's in the one who's being disobedient. Definitely not God. Because if we love God the way we should, in other words, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength, as Jesus said, we would do all that we could to please him. Jesus said in John 8, 29, I always do those things that please him, speaking of the Father. John said in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. The Apostle John said, if we love God, we'll obey his word, we'll keep his commandments. John is saying here that obedience is the evidence of love. Disobedience is the evidence of a lack of love. And we also learn here from John in this verse that, that God's commandments, they're not burdensome. God doesn't give us commands to burden our life, to make our life miserable. He doesn't give us commandments you know, to take all the joy out of our life. His commands are for our good. They're for our joy and blessing. When we disobey God's word, we, forget, we, forfeit, we forfeit His wonderful intentions behind His commands. You see, this grieves God. So when He judges us for our disobedience, He's only trying to bring us back to obedience, which is the place of blessing. That's, that's, his, that's his abundant grace. He's showing us his love for us, even in our rebelliousness. I love what Paul said in Romans 5, 8. He said, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, you know, back in the day before we came to the Lord and, and we didn't want anything to do with God or we just, yeah, we could care less about God. Paul says, while we were still in that sinful state, Jesus still died for us. Can you imagine? Jesus still died for us, even when we didn't want anything to do with him. But even though that's true, we're not to use the love and the grace of God as a license to sin more. We're not to abuse the grace of God. Because that will cause you to learn the hard and painful way that God's love and grace does have a limit. Even Paul himself said in Romans 6, 1 and 2, he said, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? He said, of course not. Because we've died to sin. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? So not only was God upset by Jonah's sin, the second thing that we see is nature, believe it or not. Nature was upset by Jonah's sin. Again, look at verse 4. It says, The Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. Notice, underline the words, the Lord sent. This is important to understand. The Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. And as a result, there was a mighty tempest, a mighty storm on the sea. So this wasn't just a blustery day with a few small waves that kicked up. God's word said this was a mighty tempest. It was a violent storm. And then verse 13 here adds the sea grew more tempestuous. And then in verse 15 it says the sea was raging. The sea was extremely upset by the sin of Noah, of Joah, Jonah. 
Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20 says, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. Those waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Psalm 89.9 says, The Lord sent a great wind. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. When those waves rise, God's the one who stills, stills them. He's the one who calms them down. Now, when it says the Lord sent out a great wind, when we see that, that, that the raging sea, the waves rise up and God stills those waves, when he, that tells me that the weather and nature is not dictated by chance. Or because of the sudden change of a weather system. You know, we hear the high, low pressure systems. You know, th- those aren't the cause of the weather. Genesis 8.22 says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. God set the weather, He set the systems in, in order. He, he put those in order. Day and night, winter and summer, cold and heat. In Genesis there, God was saying that the regularity of days and weeks and seasons would continue as long as the earth endured. And thank God God guaranteed this because if if this wasn't guaranteed, we could never be sure of having the necessities of life. The Lord arranged, created the universe in such a way that the living things on earth might be maintained and this includes men and women who way too often forget God's care. Listen to what it says in Nahum, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Notice, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. We hear about droughts. We hear about lakes drying up. We hear about the rivers drying up. And what does the world tell us? Hey, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the climate, it's the global warming. So God's in control of all that's going on. Haggai, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, it says, Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. Listen, God says, For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and all the labor of your land. He said, I call for a drought. Deuteronomy eleven sixteen through 17 God said, take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you and he shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. God shuts up the heavens and doesn't allow rain. He says, and the land will yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. Isaiah 29, 6, you will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. The Bible tells us that weather is controlled by God and that he often adjusts it to reflect the respect that we give or don't give to his commands. It's a type of judgment. But you see, man refuses to believe in a God and refuses to believe that God would bring judgment like that or would do anything or could do anything like that. So the wind here in Jonah's case, it wasn't the primary cause of a smooth sea that turned into a terrifying storm during Jonah's trip. 
Verse 4 says, The Lord sent out a great wind on the sea because Jonah disobeyed. That makes you think about all that we hear about the great drought in our nation, in California. And when you look at California and its, and its sinfulness, the laws that we've legislated, abortion, same-sex marriage, all things that are contrary to God's word, I, this is what brings judgment. We're due for judgment. And evil continues to get worse. God being just kicked out of everything. Not allowed in the schools, in the courts. We should expect judgment. When oceans are turbulent and there's earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes that destroy cities and lives that are shattered because of them, we have to look for a reason because there is a reason. When these catastrophes happen, we can't just write them off as as nothing more than chance. We need to look to God for answers. Now, in what I'm saying, the world laughs at what I'm saying. They laugh at this kind of thinking when it comes to weather and other kinds of, of, of devastating kinds of nature. All around us are alarming disturbances of weather and other events of nature. But man's reaction to them are so pitiful. They don't stop to think about God. We start to hear about, we start to hear these long, drawn out explanations about fossil fuels and and, and cars and other modes of transportation. We hear on the news leaders flying to and from all over the world, gathering at, at these climate control summits to talk about what they can do to stop these weather changes which I believe, based on God's word, are judgments of God. All these brilliant scholars and scientists gathering together to stop, again, these climate changes. Going to these summits to talk about what they can do to stop these weather changes. Romans 8.21, Paul says, Professing to be wise, they became fools. You know, so we're going to all this solar heating and wind-driven power, electric vehicles, billions of dollars spent on going green. They call it going green because of all the green they're spending trying to go green. We'd rather believe all these things are caused by men and machines because that will remove God from our lives. That's why creation is so popular. There's no responsibility to a God. None of men's explanations get to the root cause of the problem. Sin. Disobedience to God. But God has the answer. And we need to discover the reason or we will continue having more disasters. Greater and more everywhere. Third, Jonah's sin affected the ship that he was on. Look at verse 4 again. Look at what it says. The ship was about to be broken up. Jonah's rebellion resulted in a ship being tossed around by the winds. Now, this wasn't a a lightweight ship. This wasn't a flimsy ship. 
In Psalm 48, 6, it speaks of the, the, the ships of Tarshish. It says, as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. The east wind caused shipwrecks. The ships of Tarshish are used as a figure of the worldly powers. These ships were the best ships on the ocean. I mean, we saw what happened to the Titanic. Indestructible. Again, the wisdom of man. I love what J.G. Butler says about many ships. Many ships are affected by sin. Fellowship with God. Companionship with one's spouse. Stewardship of divine blessings. The lordship of Christ in one's life. And the worship of God are all like to be broken when sin comes into one's life. You can see the shipwrecks in many people's lives today because of sin. These people are the examples of sin's destructive power rather than examples of the blessedness of being submissive to God's word. The fourth thing that we see affected by Jonah's sin is that Jonah's sin touched others. It affected those that were on the ship. If the ship that Jonah was on was affected by Jonah's sin, think about what, maybe, what about the other ships that may have been on the sea at that time of the storm? Think about how many other lives were in great fear and danger before, Jonah's sin, before Jonah's, uh, Jonah was tossed overboard. The lives of those mariners were in a lot of danger because the storm was so powerful it was possible to t- it could tear, up, tear that ship apart. And if that ship was torn apart, there wouldn't be much hope for any of the men on board surviving that storm if that ship broke apart and sank. No lifeboats would stay afloat. No one falling into the sea would have much hope of staying alive. This would be the end of their life. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Sin is a merciless executioner. Disobedience puts you in danger like nothing else does. Jonah was sent to Nineveh by God to save souls from their sin. But here's Jonah now putting many people in danger of losing their souls because of his sin. Look at verse 5 now. It says, Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Jonah's sin brought great fear to those men's hearts that were on that boat. Now these these mariners, these were veterans. These were hardened mariners. They had experienced many storms at at sea. The word mariners here in verse 5 says by some people that they were very experienced men of the sea because the Hebrew word mariner has to do with salt. Some scholars say that these these sailors could be called salts. And the word salt comes from the fact that the ocean where they spend a lot of their time is salty. These men on the ship, they weren't rookies. But they were afraid. So their fear tells us that this wasn't an ordinary storm. It was a powerful one. Because Jonah's sin caused the storms, uh, because Jonah's sin caused the storm, sin was the root cause of the fear of those men on that ship. This also tells us that sin doesn't bring calmness, it brings panic. 
Sin doesn't bring comfort. It brings unrest. It brings anxiety and troubled hearts and minds. Fear overcomes people in the world because of the sin in the world. There are a lot of people suffering today from fear and anxiety in the world. And they try everything they can to remove that fear. Drugs, alcohol, whatever it might be. But until man's disobedience to sin is dealt with properly, fear will continue to haunt and be a nuisance to men. It says here that these men were so scared it caused them to pray. A lot of people say they're not praying people. But I tell you what, there will come a time in their life an emergency extreme enough causes people to pray. Men who don't usually pray when things are going well will often pray hardest and best in in emergencies. Listen to Psalm 107, verse 23 through 29. It gives us that example. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business in great waters, they see the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For God commands and raises. Here's another passage where it talks about God commanding the storms of the sea. For God commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. In other words, the waves are going up and down. He says, they go down again to the depths. Their soul melts. Notice, talking about these men on the ship, these veteran sailors. He says, he says they reel, I'm sorry, their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and they stagger like drunken men. And they, notice, they're at their wit's end. Then they, cry, then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and He brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. I love that, this this picture here. The waves are rising up to the heavens. They're going down to the depths of the sea. These waves were huge. They were fierce. It says these men were staggering around on that ship like drunken men. He says they were at their wit's end. And they began to cry out to God. And God brought them out of their distresses. Man, if you're distressed, harassed, depressed, God brings you out of those conditions because God calms the storms in your life. And He calmed these storms here on the sea and its waves were still. It says, and then the men were glad because they were quiet. But notice, He says that they were at their wit's end. And you know what? When you're at your wit's end, that's where you'll find God. And that's why many times God will allow you to come to a place in your life where you are at your wit's end. You can't handle anymore. I don't know what else I can do. And that's where you'll find God. When you quit thinking, I can handle it. When you quit thinking, you know, I I can deal with this. And you tell God, Lord, I'm at my wit's end. He says, good. That's why I allowed you to get to this point in your life. So that now I can come in. And I can calm the waves in your life. I can still the storm in your life. And the men said they, they were glad. Because now those waves, those, those stormy winds in their life were now quiet. Even though we are, we are to pray in times of crisis, if that's the only time we pray, then we may be very offensive to God. Because many times we come to God only when we need something. Only when the the, the situation calls for it. This kind of praying won't get us anywhere with God. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray in a crisis. 
You see, Satan does everything he can to get us to our wit's end, and God allows that in order to... But Satan is trying to silence your joy. He's trying to kill your testimony. But you see, sometimes Satan outdoes himself. Because when our hearts are overwhelmed, and we just throw ourselves on God, our merciless enemy has just defeated his own purpose. And then in verse 5, we see that uh, uh, Jonah's sin affected the captain on this ship. Again, look at verse 5. It says, Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the sea and and fallen fast asleep. Notice verse 6. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. The storm was about to tear the ship apart. The captain's crew was so scared, they were scared to death, that they were throwing the ship's cargo overboard in in order to keep the ship from sinking. And while all of this chaos is going on on this ship, it says that Jonah is down in the bottom of the ship sleeping. Can you imagine? Last week when we talked about this, it's because sin makes hearts hard. And Jonah was able to sleep through all of this. So the captain had every right to be upset. Here, this, because of Jonah, God has brought this terrible storm upon the sea. The boats, the ship's about to be torn apart. The, the men are scared to death, and Jonah's down below sleeping. The way the captain dealt with Jonah is the way that preachers should deal with sin. The captive's message was harsh. You'll never get the attention of someone or a sinner to recognize the danger he's in if you sweet-talk them. Secondly, the captain's message was humbling. It was kind of embarrassing to, to be called sleeper. Hey, sleeper, get up. He didn't say, hey, my friend. Captain told him to get up and to pray. Now, here was a prophet of God who should have been leading the way spiritually. But he was, only, he was the only one not praying. In Acts chapter 27, on, on Paul's trip to Malta, they encountered a terrible storm. But I love Paul's example during the storm. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 27. It says, all hope, Paul, Paul was saying, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from, uh, from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and he said, men, you should have listened to me. And not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. Here's Paul encouraging the men on the ship. He says, hey guys, take heart, don't worry, none of us, no life is going to be lost. Just the ship's going to fall apart, but you're going to be okay. He, said, for there, he says, for there stood me this night an angel of, of God, to whom I belong and to whom I serve. And he said, do not be afraid. Paul, you must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. He said, therefore, take heart, men, for I believe that God, he says, I believe that it will be just as God told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all take food, saying, today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eat and eaten. 
Two weeks, man, these people had, hadn't eaten. They were probably so seasick. This storm was so terrible, they couldn't eat. Paul's encouraging them, hey, guys, you need to eat. It's been two weeks since you've eaten anything. He says, therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival. He says, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. Here we have Jonah sleeping in the bottom of a boat. He could care less about what's going on above him. Here's Paul on the other end of that spectrum. He's in, he, he's in control. He's, he's encouraging the men. He's helping them to get through this storm. Third, the captain's message was honorable. The captain told Jonah to do something that was honorable. He said, pray. He said, arise and call on your God, Jonah. Now, sin doesn't like to pray. And sin will never get excited about joining others in prayer. When a person is living in disobedience to the Lord, they'll have a difficult time wanting to pray. And then sixth, Jonah. Okay, the sixth way that this uh, sin affected uh, those by him, it says Jonah himself was affected by his sin. The peace of every sinner will quickly come to an end sooner or later. The mind, the heart, and the body will be, will, will be so shaken when they realize the wrong path that they're on. Look at verse 6 again. So the captain came to him, that is Jonah, and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. The trip was over. The pleasures of sin have now come to an end. The ugly consequences, the ugly side of sin is going to start bringing pain and remorse. You can't get away from the disturbing effect of sin. Whatever profit, whatever pleasure and peace you had at the beginning are only temporary. And soon that sin will give way to the bitter and humbling and painful consequences of sin. When this disturbing effect of sin on Jonah's comfortable nap speaks strongly about the effect of sin, finally catching up with him. It also speaks of God's grace because God woke him up. He woke him up to his sinful condition. Jonah needed to be disturbed. Jonah needed to be awakened from his deep sinful spiritual coma in order to realize the danger that he was in. The nature of sin often makes the sinner totally unaware of the destruction, even though it's staring you right in the face. Others all around may be crying out in great fear at the coming doom, but the sinner is dulled by sin, becomes insensitive by his sin. And he's often the last one to become excited about all the dangerous condition. That's the way it was with sleeping Jonah. It was, he was the last to awaken to the danger that he was in. And he had been sleeping for a long time. He had been spiritually asleep all the while that he was making his way to Joppa. And Jonah had been sleeping a lot longer than this nap in the bottom of the ship. Jonah had been walking blindly into danger like a sleepwalker, not knowing the dangerous situation he was walking into. It's like Isaiah said in chapter 42, verse 25, what Isaiah said about ancient Israel. He said, therefore, he, that is God, poured out his fury on them and destroyed them in battle. They were enveloped in flames, but they still refused to understand. They were consumed by fire, but they did not learn their lesson. 
I mean, what a sad picture. There was a fire burning all around the Israelites. Then the people were burning, but the person still doesn't know it. So here's Jonah in the ship, surrounded by a powerful wind, pounding waves, but he didn't even know what was going on, and he needed to be awakened from this death, death, death nap that he was taking. Also, Jonah was walking into the fiery wrath of God, but he was desensitized by his disobedience, and he slept without a care in the world. Jonah needed to wake up, and people need to wake up today to their sin. Jonah needed to thank God for those who would dare to awaken him. So in closing, it's often a, a thankless task, and not that it's a task, but you know, when, when that person that was, you know, uh, the one that, that, that came to you and shared God's word with you and, and, you know, led you into a relationship with Christ, you know, and, and without, without that, you know, you, you might perish. But think about, again, that one person. Have you ever thought about saying thank you to that person? Hey, man, thank you for sharing God's word with me. Thank you for praying for me. Thank you for not giving up on me, even though I told you to take a hike. Even though I told you, hey, I, I don't want to hear about the Bible. I don't want to hear about God. I don't want to hear about any of that stuff. Have you ever told them thank you? Because I, I heard somebody say that one time, one of the Bible commentators. And, you know, Pastor Rawl was the one who was so, you know, involved in, in, in praying for me and in sharing scripture with me and, and ultimately leading me to Christ. And when I heard that, I, said, I called him up and I said, hey, bro, thank you, you know, that you didn't give up on me. When I said, hey, take a hike. When I didn't want to hear what you had to say about the Bible. But I said, thank you, because, you know, I'm saved today because he didn't give up. So if you can remember who that person was, if they're still around, hey, call them up and say, hey, man, thank you that you prayed for me, that you shared God's word for me, because I'm saved today. Father, we thank you so much for your word, God. We thank you for your love, your grace. We thank you for your tender mercies, Lord. We thank you, Father, for never giving up on us, God. Even at times we shake our fist at you, Lord, and say, hey, get out of my life. I don't want anything to do with you. You never give up. You never go away. You're always there because you're not willing that any man should perish. So we thank you, Lord, and we thank you for sending your son that he would die on a cross for us, that our sins could be forgiven, and that we could have a new start in life, God, and that we would know that we are bound for heaven, God. So, Lord, you, you are just so gracious, so loving to do those things for us, God. So we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.